You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. As some of you may know, my my wife, Naomi, comes from a large family. She has eight siblings, and as of last count, I could be wrong on this, but there are something like 40 grandchildren in the family. So we've done our small part by adding four to that number. Uh, Needless to say, when the whole crew is together, these, uh, these reunions are a grand affair. Several years back at one of these gatherings, Naomi's family chartered a bus, and this allowed everyone to be together for, for a day's outing up in Traverse City, Michigan. We all squeezed into the large passenger bus, baby squealing, jokes flying. It, it was really a good time, but by the day's end, everyone was exhausted, so when we piled back onto the bus, they put a children's movie on for, for all the kids on the bus. Screens were hanging at various places uh, in the bus, and to kill the To kill some time for the long ride home, I started watching the movie as well on the nearest screen to me. And the movie was Joseph, King of Dreams. It was was one of these Bible cartoon movies like Prince of Egypt, for those of you who remember that one. I really chuckle as I think back on this day because I found myself completely engrossed in this cartoon version of Joseph and his brothers. Most of them, I say, most of the adults, you know, on the bus were chatting quietly or, or catching up on lost sleep, but not me. I, I started as a general, this looks cute, turned into a deep dive for me and for, for all the children on the bus. So by the movie's end, and I to, I'm embarrassed to say this, but by the movie's end, I found myself wiping away tears and then sort of nervously looking around the bus, hoping that my, my very manly brother-in-laws didn't, didn't see me. Who doesn't love the story of Joseph? It has intrigue, family dysfunction, sexual temptation, and and the kind of comeuppance most people can only fantasize about. So on the surface level, the story itself is first rate. It's one of the Bible's greatest stories, in my opinion, and, and the reason why I got lost in the cartoon version all those years back. Jacob loved Joseph. And he loved Joseph in such a way as to create deep divisions in the family. Dr. Phil would have had a field day uh, with this crew. And the truth be told, Joseph is no real treat either. He's the kind of kid that can be hard to like. He's special and talented and worse. He knows he's special and doesn't mind letting his brothers know as well. He's been gifted by the Lord with dreams and with insights. And as with so many young people, he, he flaunts his gifts. Joseph hadn't read the proverb yet that says, let another man praise you and not your own lips. And the scenes of the family and the story come undone. It's tragic on so many levels. Joseph's brothers disdain him. They wish him dead. It's as if all the brothers in the story are Cain and solitary Joseph is Abel. Here comes the dreamer, they say. Let's kill him. And instead of killing Joseph, they sold him into slavery and they turn a profit by doing that and Joseph like the Israelites who will come after him in Exodus is now a slave in Egypt and while in Egypt in servitude to Potiphar he's one of the captains in Pharaoh's army it becomes obvious to Potiphar that Joseph was indeed special the Lord was with him everything he touched seemed to turn to gold 
So Potiphar handed Joseph the keys of all of his wealth and his household. The keys, that is, to everything except for Potiphar's wife. Oh, the sermons I heard as a young person about Joseph and Potiphar's um, advancing wife. Day after day, she set her lustful intentions on Joseph. Lie with me, in classical and biblical language. Lie with me, Joseph. And day after day, Joseph would resist her advances till finally she had had enough of his denials and she frames him for the very immorality he refused to do. And it goes from bad to worse and Joseph finds himself in prison. But the storyteller of Genesis wants you to know something about all of these trying twists and turns in Joseph's life. The Bible says this, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the prison keeper. Even in prison, the Lord was with Joseph. It's remarkable, really. And in Potiphar's house, Joseph becomes the greatest and most respected of all the servants. And now even in prison, Joseph becomes the greatest and the most respected of all the prisoners. The Lord was with him, the Bible says. And just tuck this thought away for a moment. We'll return to it uh, toward the end of the sermon. But the text never really tells us that Joseph knew that the Lord was with him, orchestrating all these events of his life to some grand and great purpose. Something like Joseph saying uh, after he was falsely accused that he sighs and smiles because he knows it was all just a part of the big plan. We're, We're not told anything like that. The scriptures want you as a reader to know that the Lord was with him, and indeed the Lord was. But we don't really know how conscious Joseph was of this basic fact of his existence. But what we do know is that Joseph saw a lot of trouble in his life. The whole story is so good, it's worth retelling, but we'll have to skip some of the, some of the fun details. There are a series of unfortunate events involving a baker, a, a cupbearer, and some wild dreams Joseph finds himself before the most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And Pharaoh, too, sees Joseph for who he truly is, a gifted and wise man, divinely gifted, uniquely fitted for this moment in time. And Pharaoh, think of this, places the son of Jacob on the very throne of Egypt as his vice-regent, with no one more powerful in the land save the Pharaoh himself. What an incredible journey from a wilderness pit to the throne of Egypt. And the whole time, whether Joseph was aware of it or not, the Lord was with him. I want to chase another line of thought with you all this morning in our reading, but but I would fail you today if I didn't identify Joseph for you as a redemptive figure in the book of Genesis. You may recall God's promises to to Abraham back in, in chapter 12 that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed by his offspring. I mean, little could Abraham have ever guessed in his wildest dreams that his great-grandson would become the second most powerful man in Egypt and the instrument that God would use to save Egypt and all the surrounding nations. Joseph is exhibit A of what would be fulfilled more fully and completely in time with Jesus, the Savior of the whole world. But let's get back to the story. 
The anticipation builds as we move between two scenes. In Egypt, Joseph has risen to power and to fame. And back in Canaan, Jacob and his sons are experiencing famine and are suffering. They're running out of food. And Jacob offers in Genesis 42 what must be one of the greatest dad lines in all of the Bible. This is what Jacob says to his sons. Why are you looking at each other? Isn't that great? Stop standing around, fellas, just looking at each other. I hear they have grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy us some. And the tension in the story is building now because we know where this thing is heading. The brothers and Joseph are going to meet. It's their destiny, much like Esau and Jacob's meeting before them. And when they finally come to Egypt, Joseph plays this intricate cat and mouse game with them. The whole thing's a big ruse. Now, Joseph inquires after their father. He sets his gaze on his younger brother, Benjamin. He even enjoys an evening meal with his brothers. All the while, they have no idea who he is. And then Joseph goes for the jugular, plants some contraband, a golden chalice, in Benjamin's grain sack to set him up. And when he's discovered, the brothers begin to panic because they know of Jacob's great loss, their father, with Joseph. And how Benjamin is the only son of Rachel that he has left. Judah, in a very moving scene, pleads with Joseph not to punish the boy, offering himself instead. He explains the whole family story to Joseph, including the story of Joseph's supposed death and the fact that only Benjamin remains. The whole scene in in chapter 4 of Genesis, it's riveting. The brothers, they've changed so dramatically from their younger selves. Now we see Judah pleading for his brother Benjamin and showing great compassion to his father. And when Joseph sees all of this unfolding before him, the test that reveals his brother's compassion for Benjamin and their father, Joseph loses control of his emotions and he explodes right in front of the whole royal court. Leave, he yells out. And Joseph begins to heave with sobs so loud that the whole house hears him weeping. I can only imagine what the brothers are thinking at this moment. What in heaven's name is going on here? And our lectionary reading this morning is the big reveal. This is the dramatic moment that we've all been waiting for. Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Oh my. I shouldn't let my interpretive imagination run too far with our reading this morning, but I have to imagine that if there were ancient Hebrew swear words, then Joseph's brothers may have muttered them right at this point. Actually, the Bible gets it better. This is what the Bible says. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Of course they were. This ruler of Egypt who just lost control of his emotions in front of the whole royal court is the brother they tried to kill so long ago. I mean, the situation couldn't be more dismaying and distressing. What will Joseph do now? And here's what the scriptures say. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive many survivors. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, framed by Potiphar's wife, years in prison, and now vice regent in Egypt. All of this weaves a tapestry of providence in Joseph's life. God sent me to preserve life and to preserve the redemptive line. In other words, no Joseph, no King David, no King Jesus. It was not you who sent me here, says Joseph, but God. What a remarkable witness to the providence of God in the affairs of human existence and the particularities of Joseph's life. Let me ask you a series of questions this, this morning, questions I've been asking myself. Do you really believe that God exists? Let me put it more forthrightly. Do you believe that God is actually involved in the details and the mess of your life? The joy and the pain, the gains and the losses, the celebrations and the grieving, even the whole hum of just ordinary life. I've been thinking about these things a lot personally and, and in light of my children, asking them these questions. Do you all really believe that God exists? Does it matter to the daily routine of your life if he does? And I think about this with my children because I know something about myself. How easy it is to be a practical atheist and how often I am and will be. I confess God on paper, but go on about so much of life as if it really doesn't, doesn't matter. And here in the story we, we hear this morning, Joseph reminds us it's not you who sent me here, but God. That's a confession of faith about the providential hand of our great and gracious God in the details of our lives. I think the Heidelberg Catechism says it so beautifully when it defines providence this way. Here, here's the question. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. There's so much to unpack in that definition of providence, but let's just keep it on the sidewalk for now. God's power and his hand is, is supporting and sustaining and governing your existence in such a way that nothing comes to you by chance. The victories and the viruses... We can't always interpret God's providence, and the wise Christian would avoid doing so. 
Neither can we avoid or take the sting out of our pit and our prison moments. Joseph certainly didn't. So I don't say these things this morning to club you because you struggle to see God in the details. I do too. I say these things to encourage you and me this morning. As William Cooper said so long ago, behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. Or in the words of Joseph, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.